0: Our text this morning is in Titus chapter 3. I want to start by reading from that text. If you have a Bible, open up to Titus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. I have a printed Bible. If you have your Bible app, if you'd like a Bible, sometimes there's a rack in the back with those. I'm going to read our text for us to begin. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 11, says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division and, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful He is self-condemned. So, we've been working through the book of Titus the last two weeks, and then this week, the third week, the third chapter, and in some ways, I get to preach the very best verses from the book of Titus, and the reason I say that is we have uh, in the the first part of this section, actually starting in in verse 3, not verse 4, verses uh, 3 and and on, this beautiful picture of the story of Jesus, his... um, gift of grace for our salvation, what we call the gospel. Maybe the, the, the best picture of the gospel in the book of Titus. I'm lucky. I drew chapter 3, and I get to preach it. So I'm excited to, to share that with you this morning. Now, this morning, on a Sunday morning, if you look around Emporia, if you look around the country, I would say that this morning you could find, uh, very likely, two different kinds of churches working with two different models for ministry, Now, in one kind of church, the pastor of the church tries to get everyone saved every week. That the message of the gospel is proclaimed every week. That's the big idea every week. Everyone needs to become a Christian every time. Uh, I grew up in this kind of a church that was really important to me in finding Jesus and coming to salvation. But uh, that message of salvation every week doesn't make uh, much room for encouragement or training in Christian discipleship, in growth, in what comes after salvation. So it's not an ideal model for how to do church. There's a second type of church that's very likely um, sharing a message this very moment on a Sunday morning. This second type of church is the kind of church that makes a more grave error than preaching the gospel every week, trying to get everyone saved every week. They never preach the need for salvation from our heinous sin and the beautiful grace of Jesus. They preach a gospel of gradual self-improvement, and that's no gospel at all. Now, Paul avoids both of those mistakes. The Apostle Paul avoids both of those pitfalls in his advice to Titus. He gives us instruction to redirect the church in Crete and essentially says this, When the heart is truly transformed by grace, a transformed life will follow. That's what I would say is our, uh, the big idea that I want us to hold on to this morning. And I want to just follow the order that Paul lay, lays out in these uh, verses that I've read. What a soul is before Salvation, the order of salvation, and then the good works that follow. So, first, let's start with where we've been. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul begins with this For we ourselves were once foolish, we were uh, uh, disobedient, we were led astray. Um, Essentially, Paul lays out for Titus to share with the church You are either purified by the grace of Jesus. Or you are not. And remember the context of the book of Titus. Um, Jordan shared this with us, Brent shared this with us. This is just a sidebar, it's not in my notes. I wrote this down. I can't remember if it was when Jordan was preaching or when Brent was preaching. It is a a joy to step before you and to share from God's word in a church where uh, our pastor and our leaders and our staff and we all hold the, the word of God. Uh, at highest value. And that's just, that's just extra, that's just a little bonus. Um, I love that that is the case. So remember, uh, Jordan or Brent, we've talked about the, the context of the book of Titus. Paul sent Titus to the island of Crete to correct the church there. And I want to summarize Paul's words to Titus this way You are going to a group of people who are sinful, out of control, and they can't keep their lying mouths shut. I don't know if you caught that in the message of Titus. Maybe it sounds like my um, abbreviated form is a little bit harsh, but think back on, on the context. In one, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, they must be silenced. In chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, rebuke them sharply. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus is on a spiritual seek and destroy mission. I don't know if you know this. Titus, maybe he wore like body armor and camo. Maybe he looked the part. Maybe he looked quiet and reserved. But he is on, whether you think of it one way or the other, he's on a spiritual seek and destroy mission. Tell them you are either a purified possession of Jesus or you're out. That's Paul's instruction to Titus. Now, in the opening couple of verses that I've read, I think one thing that perhaps Paul says to Titus is something to to soften the blow. Paul shines a light on the, the church in Crete throughout these chapters, but he also makes a point by shining on his own past condition. Here's where we, Paul and Titus, here's where we used to be. In the midst of this difficult message, in this word of correction, remember, here's where your spiritual fathers used to be. You could almost think of it this way: that, that Titus kind of gathers some of these people around. He says, I've given you this difficult message, but remember, Paul and I, we used to be enslaved to sin. We used to be like like animals, like dogs in the street grasping and biting at whatever would bring us pleasure. We were violently uh, hateful towards other people, and they hated us. This is where we came from. So he can relate to where the church in Crete, where they're coming from, and what they have to deal with. Now, I want you to keep thinking about this idea of how this shines a light on our spiritual condition, thinking about where we used to be or perhaps where we would be today without Jesus, that this shines a light on our souls, that that God's Word is uniquely powerful in shining a light on us. Parents, have you ever lost something in the mouth, nose, or ears of your children? Now, maybe you didn't lose it, you didn't put it there, but... You knew that there was something, and now it's missing, and it's in your child. Does this sound familiar? Hypothetically, this might sound familiar to some of you. Maybe you knew where a button, an M&M, or a Lego used to be, but now it is inside of your child. Hypothetically, the first thing that I do is I get a light. You lay your kid back, and you take a light, and you shine it into that ear, nose, or throat, uh, not like a doctor, but as a parent, and you look for what was lost, right? Hypothetically, that has been my experience when pink Legos are stuck in a nose for more than a day. Um, Ask Lisa about the details of that. You ask, where did that go? And the light gives you a better guess as to where it went and how difficult it will be to take it out of your child. Stick with me for a minute. God's Word shines a bright light into our souls, and it reveals with the snottiness and the mess of our sin what's really on the inside. That that's one of the things that God's Word does is that it shines a light. But God's Word doesn't shine like the the light on your phone or a flashlight. God's Word is like surgical lighting. I've never been in a, like, surgical amphitheater, but they have these bright lights so the surgeon can see what they're supposed to do. God's word isn't a flashlight. God's word is like surgical lighting. All of the disease of sin that resides in our heart, the cancer of our souls is illuminated. It shows us this is what's broken inside of you, and this is why we need salvation. Nothing can stay in the dark. So what is this application of Paul's indication of we used to be this way? There's an important theme in the Gospels that comes up again and again as Jesus ministered to various kinds of people. In the first century, there was this idea taken from the Old Testament that those who were physically ill, had a broken body, a sickness... Or those who had a a sinful life, a reputation for breaking the rules. That You were supposed to stay distant, keep those people outside of the community. Stay away from tax collectors and prostitutes, the bad people. Stay away from those who have leprosy or blindness and brokenness. The idea was that if you came into contact with sickness, if you came into contact with sin that it would spread to you and spread throughout the community. But what happens when they encounter Jesus? The people who encounter Jesus left physically healed and forgiven of their sin, and Jesus remained sinless. This text reminds us to think carefully about what our lives would be like if not for Jesus. Not just in your past, but what would life be like for you now if you'd continue to follow your own broken way? Uh, Part of the sanctifying process of following Jesus for me has included, not at my desire, but at God's prompting regular reminders of the ugliness of my own pride. For whatever reason, year by year, now decade by decade, the Lord has prompted me like this. Here's a picture of pride again and again. And slowly but surely, in little incremental ways, the Lord has turned that pride into humility. And the way I think about it, if I had not met Jesus, because I I became a follower of Jesus as a boy, as a 12-year-old, so I don't have a story like Paul or like Titus, but in some regard, I do. If I had not met Jesus, if I had not experienced decades of sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, my pride wouldn't have been turning into humility. My pride would have turned into um, a kind of conceit or disdain. If not for Jesus, I would have a wildly elevated sense of my own value and a diminished sense of the, the value and goodness of other people. What would the ugliness of my pride look like? It would be a monster. And C.S. Lewis is always good for a a good quote. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see that something is above you. If not for Jesus, the pride of my heart would always turn me looking down on other people, never able to see the goodness of God, the goodness of a Savior. The value in giving a life without Jesus a little bit of consideration is that it increases our comprehension of the great grace that he bestows upon us at salvation. So Paul says, before, this is what we were like. We can consider, if not for Jesus or before Jesus, this is what my life would be like. The next thing that Jesus, or the next thing that Paul says about Jesus is this order of salvation. In verses five and six of chapter three, Paul is clear and specific. I'll read it again. Here's what he says He says, He, Jesus, saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul sets down a very specific and ordered understanding of salvation from human sin. He saved us by his mercy, not by any good that we could do. And the he is not generic. It's not universal. It's very specific. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of the Bible, does the saving. God the Father loves us. Jesus the Son gave his life for us. And the Spirit of God renews and refreshes us, gives us a new life from the inside out. None of us came to God with a cleaned up life worthy on our own account. We were saved by a loving God. We were broken by the vile stain of sin. And the blood of Jesus is the only thing that made us clean. Now, how important is it that we, understand this basic message of the gospel. This message of salvation might seem like an old news kind of message if you grew up in church. If you're like me, like I grew up going to church from the time of like maybe 10 years old on. Um, So 30 years I've been in church pretty regularly. I can't get away from it. It keeps, keeps me here. So for 30 years, have I heard the message of the gospel not a 100 times, not a 1,000 times, I don't know, 10,000 times? And if you're older than me, how many times have you heard the message of the gospel and think, well, yeah, I've got that. I've got the the basics of the gospel. I want you to keep in mind what's happening when you read, like verses 5 and 6, when you read the message of salvation through grace how does that even get to us? Does it have value? I want you to keep in mind what's happening in thinking about the context of this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. This text, it wouldn't have appeared as a chapter in a book. It would have been a scroll. When Paul records this originally, it would have been a scroll that was expensive to produce. This text would have been put down in writing on papyrus or maybe vellum, specially prepared plant material or animal skin that was really rare and expensive. And what Paul likely would have done in sending this letter to Titus, he would have recruited a specialized secretary who he sits down with and he says to this scribe, here's exactly what I want to go into this message. Perhaps one part of it is written on wax tablets ahead of time. Perhaps part of it is corrected as Paul interacts with the secretary. And they write it down as a professional because it had to be squeezed onto the smallest piece of papyrus or vellum possible with the, the greatest amount of legibility because it's written by hand. So the professional writes it down for Paul. Paul then kind of has to gather it up. And here's here's just kind of a ballpark estimate of what that would have cost. Like, I can send you an email, and how much does it cost me? Nothing. I can send you a letter, and it costs me 50 cents. I could stick the whole book, the Holy Bible, into a box and mail it to you on your street for a couple of bucks. Here's a ballpark estimate. Perhaps it cost Paul $1,000 in our currency just to write three chapters from a professional scribe on a scroll of papyrus. Then he has to get it from where he's at to the island of Crete. He doesn't send it with the Roman Postal Service. The Roman Postal Service was for military figures and government figures. If he says, I have a story about Jesus, and it doesn't get there with the Roman Postal Service. That's why at the end of chapter 3, he names, it's going to come to you, and it's going to be either one of these two dudes. He doesn't name which one, either Artemis or Tychicus. One of these guys, my personal friends, I'm going to give them the scroll, and they are going to walk. If it's written from Ephesus, which is, I think, a good guess, that Paul's in Ephesus when he writes this, they're going to walk 350 miles to get to Crete. And that includes several boat rides. So uh, the walking and the boat travel 350 miles. He gets to Crete, and he comes before The followers of Jesus and the troublemakers alike, and and he reads it out loud to them both. And here's the message that he says, perhaps having paid a dollar a word to put it onto papyrus or onto vellum, having paid for his best friend to travel 350 miles on foot, they get to the church, they gather the church together and said, here's the message that Paul sends. It includes, you're foolish, you're sinful, and you can't keep your mouth shut. But then he also says, here's the the heart. There is a, a message of grace, that salvation comes through grace. We used to be this way, but now salvation has come from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through his grace. And not through any good work that you would do. Value every word of that message. Don't think of that message as just the gospel one more time. Let me explain really with some clarity why the order really matters. If you come over to my house tomorrow morning, and you come for a visit, I might uh, offer you a cup of coffee. So you come over to my house tomorrow morning on a Monday. It's early in the morning. We're going to have coffee together. Here's how this goes. At my house, the routine is this. First, I give you a cup, and then I pour you some coffee. Right? The order of what comes first is really important. First, The follower of Jesus is made right by God's grace. Second, the follower of Jesus lives out good works. If we get the coffee and the cup out of order, it's going to make a mess of life. If I say to you, welcome to my house, let me get you a cup of coffee, and I pour out the coffee and then I hand you the cup, there's a problem, it's a mess, right? You see how that doesn't work. First comes God's grace, and second comes good works. Trying to accomplish this, some kind of like right standing before God through our own effort is useless. It's self righteousness, self worship. And expecting anyone else to come to Jesus, to come to church, to come to your Bible study with their sin problem all cleaned up and their reputation clear is another extension of self-righteousness and self-worship. What if we keep going with this coffee illustration? What if we come to know God's grace? You have the cup. But then you fail to do any good works. Paul's challenge to be devoted to good works goes unanswered. If you are given an empty mug of salvation, it's like playing tea party with my little girls. They're not—they don't play tea party anymore. If I rewind uh, several years, I would sit down with my girls and we would play tea party and say, "Oh, here you go, dad. I got you a a cup of tea." And oh, that's so nice. I love this tea. (laughs) It's so good. That's how—if you—if you you aren't a, a father of daughters, that's how the tea party goes. If you have been given salvation, if you know the grace of Jesus, but you miss the next part, your playing spiritual tea party, followers of Jesus who sit in church failing to live with devotion to God's mission are missing the point. Ephesians chapter 2 tells it this way, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus To do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Follower of Jesus, you were made by hand, by Jesus, for a purpose. To accomplish His purposes here and now until you breathe your dying breath. If you live in the same old sin pattern as before you knew Jesus, if your life is dominated by devotion to your own desires... If you refuse to submit yourself to God's word, to godly leaders, my friend, you are an empty cup. You've missed the purpose. So, Paul says to Timothy, here's what we used to be like. He says, here's the order of salvation, grace, and then these good works. What do these good works look like? Well, first I would say they're good for all people. The last phrase in Titus chapter 3 verse 8 is this. It says, speaking of these good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people, for the community. Good works that Paul is speaking about, they bring beauty, goodness, virtue, honor to the entire community. The Greek word for good and good works is the same as when Jesus, telling his parables, says, here's good fruit that comes from good seed. In chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus gave himself in his life, death, and resurrection to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Another way that Jesus spoke about good fruit is found in Matthew 3, verse 10. That's where Jesus says, The axe is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I think that means that they're important. Does doing good justify us before God or earn an extra measure of his love? No. Never. By no means. But the natural life of a follower of Jesus will lead to a devotion and eagerness to do what is good for everyone. When I think about, uh, as I was reading through Titus and and preparing for this morning, I I thought about uh, the, uh, the demonstration of a changed life, and I thought about the hymn, Amazing Grace, and its author, John Newton. Now, I almost decided to not use this illustration because, growing up in church, hearing the message of the gospel many times, I've heard the example of the life of John Newton many times. But then I kept reading, and I read some stuff that even I wasn't familiar with. So I've got to share this with you. John Newton lived. He was a, wrote the hymn "Amazing Grace" in England in the 1700s. And as a young man. Newton had lived a, a totally destructive life. He had declared that, that God was dead to him. He had set out on his life to be a, a sailor, and then he was uh, kicked out of the Navy for desertion. Um, after getting kicked out of the Navy, he got a job working transporting African slaves from North Africa to North America. America and he was such trouble on those as a a slave trader. He was such trouble that one of the ship's captains that he was working for sold Newton into slavery. So he is working chained next to African men in North Africa, working side by side with the men that he had been capturing and selling into slavery in North America. At some point, he works his way into freedom. He's on another slave trading ship, and in the Atlantic, a huge storm blows up off the the coast of Ireland. And in the midst of the storm, he he says, God save me. I I don't know anything else to do. You have to rescue me. And God reaches in and, and shows his grace to John Newton and changes his life. Before he was this terrible man, he experiences God's grace and then eventually begins to do good works. He writes books of hymns, really good stuff. But one of the key things that John Newton did as well, he worked in British Parliament to bring about the the drafting of a, a bill that brought legislation abolishing slavery in the British Empire around the year 1807. Here's a man who captured men, placing them into slavery, experiences freedom, From the slavery to sin, and now he does work to bring an end to human slavery. And he puts pen to paper and writes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's a big example to go from capturing men and placing them in slavery to working to set them free. But don't be discouraged if you can't do something huge like that. One of the things that I love about our church is that there's every opportunity to do good works for our community here. If you feel a passion inside of you growing to make a difference, I believe this church is positioned to help you with that. Abundant Harvest, if you have a desire to to help men who are in a, a difficult place in life, shiloh ministry to women if you feel desire to to care for for women in crisis if you have a heart for young children school-aged children youth all the way up to college students there's ministry to every different kind of age group if you have a heart for prayer or for worship there are great places that you can be connected here International students, ministry to international students will begin starting up this fall. If you have a heart for missions and going on mission trips, our church has great structures in place to help you with that. Food for students, if you want to care for students who are in crisis, there's all kinds of great stuff. This is just the stuff that occurred to me as I was preparing this morning. I've overlooked half of the stuff. Beautiful opportunities for you to do good works, and find an expression of God's mission for your life. The hope that Jesus offers is complete freedom for those who are slaves to sin, and the hope that Jesus offers is an invitation to purposeful good work. Let me pray for us to that end. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we who were once slaves to sin, foolish rebellious, um, hated, and hatred, um, filled with hatred, Father, thank you that you see fit to offer us grace through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, and that you renew our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that if our hearts are transformed by grace, we would be devoted to good work, devoted to your purposes here and now in this life, in this church, and in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you. You're dismissed. Have a a wonderful week in God's grace and doing His good works.